Chapter Twenty of Marcia Schuyler by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty. David had found it necessary to take a journey which might keep him away for several weeks. He told Marcia in the evening when he came home from the office. He told her as he would have told his clerk. It meant nothing to him but an annoyance that he had to start out in the early winter leave his business in others' hands for an indefinite period, and go among strangers. He did not see the whitening of Marcia's lips, nor the quick little movement of her hand to her heart. Even Marcia herself did not realize all that it meant to her. She felt as if a sudden shock had almost knocked her off her feet. This quiet life in the big house, with only David at intervals to watch and speak to occasionally, and no one to open her true heart to, had been lonely, and many a time when she was alone at night she had wept bitter tears upon her pillow, why she did not quite know. But now when she knew that it was to cease, and David was going away from her for a long time, perhaps weeks, her heart suddenly tightened, and she knew how sweet it had been growing. Almost the tears came to her eyes, but she made a quick errand to the hearth for the teapot, busying herself there until they were under control again. When she returned to her place at the table, she was able to ask David some commonplace question about the journey, which kept her true feeling quite hidden from him. He was to start the next evening, if possible. It appeared that there was something important about railroading coming up in Congress. It was necessary that he should be present to hear the debate, and also that he should see and interview influential men. It meant much to the success of the great new enterprises that were just in their infancy that he should go and find out all about them, and write them up as only he whose heart was in it could do. He was pleased to have been selected for this. He was lifted for the time above himself and his life troubles, and given to feel that he had a work in the world that was worth while, a high calling, a chance to give a push to the unrolling of the secret possibilities of the universe, and help them on their way. Marcia understood it all, and was proud and glad for him, but her own heart, which beat in such perfect sympathy with the work, felt lonely and left out. If only she could have helped, too! There was no time for David to take Marcia to her home to stay during his absence. He spoke of it regretfully, just as he was about to leave, and asked if she would like him to get someone to escort her by coach to her father's house until he should come for her. But she held back the tears by main force, and shook her head. She had canvassed that question in the still hours of the night. She had met in imagination the home village with its kindly and unkindly curiosity. She had seen their hands lifted in suspicion heard their covert whispers as to why her husband did not come with her, why he had left her so soon after the honeymoon, why a hundred things. She had even thought of Aunt Polly and her acrid tongue, and made up her mind that whatever happened, she did not want to go home to stay. The only other alternative was to go to the aunts. David expected it, and the aunts spoke of it as if nothing else were possible. Marcia would have preferred to remain alone in her own house with her beloved piano, but David would not consent, 
and the ants were scandalized at the suggestion. So to the ants went Marcia, and they took her in with a hope in their hearts that she might get the same good from the visit that the sluggard in the Bible is bidden to find. "'We must do our duty by her for David's sake,' said Aunt Hortense, with pursed lips and capable folded hands that seemed fairly to ache to get at the work of reconstructing the new niece. "'Yes, it is our opportunity,' said Aunt Amelia, with a snap, as though she thoroughly enjoyed the prospect. "'Poor David!' And so they sat and laid out their plans for their sweet young victim, who all unknowingly was coming to one of those tests in her life whereby we are tried for greater things and made perfect in patience and sweetness. It began with the first breakfast. The night before she had been company at supper, but when the morning came they felt she must be counted one of the family. They examined her thoroughly on what she had been taught with regard to housekeeping. They made her tell her recipes for pickling and preserving. They put her through a catechism of culinary lore, and always after her most animated account of the careful way in which she had been trained in this or that housewifely art, she looked up with wistful eyes that longed to please, only to be met by the hard-set lips and steely glances of the two mentors who regretted that she should not have been taught their way, which was so much better. Aunt Hortense even went so far once as to suggest that Marcia write to her stepmother and tell her how much better it was to salt the water in which potatoes were to be boiled before putting them in, and was much offended by the clear girlish laugh that bubbled up involuntarily at the thought of teaching her stepmother anything about cooking. "'Excuse me,' she said, instantly sobering as she saw the grim look of the aunt, and felt frightened at what she had done. I did not mean to laugh, indeed I did not, but it seemed so funny to think of my telling mother how to do anything. People are never too old to learn, remarked Aunt Hortense with offended mien, and one ought never to be too proud when there is a better way. But mother thinks there is no better way, I am sure. She says that it makes potatoes soggy to boil them in salt. All that grows below the ground should be salted after it is cooked, and all that grows above the ground should be cooked in salted water is her rule. I am surprised that your stepmother should uphold any such superstitious ideas, said Aunt Amelia, with a self-satisfied expression. One should never be too proud to learn something better, Aunt Hortense said grimly, and Marcia retreated in dire consternation at the thought of what might follow if these three notable housekeeping gentlewomen should come together. Somehow she felt a wicked little triumph in the thought that it would be hard to down her stepmother. Marcia was given a few light duties ostensibly to make her feel at home, but in reality she knew because the ants felt she needed their instruction. She was asked if she would like to wash the china and glass, and regularly after each meal a small wooden tub and a mop were brought in with hot water and soap, and she was expected to handle the costly heirlooms under the careful scrutiny of their worshipping owners, who evidently watched each process with strained nerves, lest any bit of treasured pottery should be cracked or broken. It was a trying ordeal. 
the girl would have been no girl if she had not chafed under this treatment. To hold her temper steady and sweet under it was almost more than she could bear. There were long afternoons when it was decreed that they should knit. Marcia had been used to take long walks at home over the smooth crust of the snow, going to her beloved woods, where she delighted to wander among the bare and creaking trees, fancying them whispering sadly to one another of the summer that was gone and the leaves they had borne now dead. But it would be a dreadful thing in the aunt's opinion for a woman, and especially a young one, to take a long walk in the woods alone, in winter too, and with no object whatever in view but a walk. What a waste of time! There were two places of refuge for Marcia during the weeks that followed. There was home. How sweet that word sounded to her! How she longed to go back there, with David coming home to his quiet meals three times a day, and with her own time to herself to do as she pleased. With housewifely zeal that was commendable in the eyes of the aunts, Marcia insisted upon going down to her own house every morning to see that all was right, guiltily knowing that in her heart she meant to hurry to her beloved books and piano. To be sure it was cold and cheerless in the empty house. She dared not make up fires and leave them, and she dared not stay too long lest the aunts would feel hurt at her absence. But she longed with an inexpressible longing to be back there by herself, away from that terrible supervision, and able to live her own glad little life and think her own thoughts untrammeled by primness. Sometimes she would curl up in David's big armchair and have a good cry, after which she would take a book and read until the creeping chills down her spine warned her that she must stop. Even then she would run up and down the hall, or take a broom and sweep vigorously to warm herself, and then go to the cold keys and play a sad little tune. All her tunes seemed sad like a wail while David was gone. The other place of refuge was Aunt Clorinda's room. Thither she would betake herself after supper to the delight of the old lady. Then the other two occupants of the house were left to themselves and might unbend from their rigid surveillance for a little while. Marcia often wondered if they ever did unbend. There was a large padded rocking chair in Aunt Clorinda's room, and Marcia would laughingly take the little old lady in her arms and place her comfortably in it, after a pleasant struggle on Miss Clorinda's part to put her guest into it. They had this same little play every evening, and it seemed to please the old lady mightily. Then when she was conquered, she always sat meekly laughing, a fine pink color in her soft peachy cheek, the candlelight from the high shelf making flickering sparkles in her old eyes that always seemed young, and she would say, That's just as David used to do. Then Marcia drew up the little mahogany stool covered with the worsted dog which Aunt Clorinda had worked when she was ten years old, and snuggling down at the old lady's feet exclaimed delightedly, Tell me about it, and they settled down to solid comfort. There came a letter from David after he had been gone a little over a week. Marcia had not expected to hear from him. He had said nothing about writing, and their relations were scarcely such as to make it necessary. Letters were an expensive luxury in those days. But when the letter was handed to her, Marcia's heart went pounding against her breast 
the color flew into her cheeks, and she sped away home on feet swift as the wings of a bird. The postmaster's daughter looked after her, and remarked to her father, My, but don't she think a lot of him! Straight to the cold, lonely house she flew, and sitting down in his big chair read it. It was a pleasant letter, beginning formally, My dear Marcia, and asking after her health. It brought back a little of the unacquaintedness she had felt when he was at home, and which had been swept away in part by her knowledge of his childhood. But it went on quite happily telling all about his journey, and describing minutely the places he had passed through and the people he had met on the way, detailing every little incident, as only a born writer and observer could do, until she felt as if he were talking to her. He told her of the men whom he had met who were interested in the new project. He told of new plans, and described minutely his visit to the foundry at West Point and the machinery he had seen. Marcia read it all breathlessly, in search of something, she knew not what, that was not there. When she had finished and found it not, there was a sense of aloofness, a sad little disappointment which welled up in her throat. She sat back to think about it. He was having a good time, and he was not lonely. He had no longing to be back in the house, and everything running, as before he had gone. He was out in the big glorious world, having to do with progress, and coming in contact with men who were making history. Of course he did not dream how lonely she was here, and how she longed, if for nothing else, just to be back here alone and do as she pleased, and not to be watched over. If only she might steal Aunt Clorinda and bring her back to live here with her while David was away. But that was not to be thought of, of course. By and by she mustered courage to be glad of her letter and to read it over once more. That night she read the letter to Aunt Clorinda, and together they discussed the great inventions and the changes that were coming to pass in the land. Aunt Clorinda was just a little beyond her depth in such a conversation, but Marcia did most of the talking, and the dear old lady made an excellent listener, with a pat here, and a, Deary me, now you don't say so, there, and a, Bless the boy, what great things he does expect, and I hope he won't be disappointed. That letter lasted them for many a day until another came, this time from Washington, with many descriptions of public men and public doings, and a word-picture of the place which made it appear much like any other place after all, if it was the capital of the country. And once there was a sentence which Marcia treasured. It was, I wish you could be here and see everything. You would enjoy it, I know. There came another letter later beginning, My dear little girl. There was nothing else in it to make Marcia's heart throb, it was all about his work, but Marcia carried it many days in her bosom. It gave her a thrill of delight to think of those words at the beginning. Of course it meant no more than that he thought of her as a girl, his little sister that was to have been, but there was a kind of ownership in the words that was sweet to Marcia's lonely heart. It had come to her that she was always looking for something that would make her feel that she belonged to David. End of chapter 20